Hello and welcome to Tisky Sour. I'm Dahlia Gabriel, filling in for Michael Walker. And going through today's stories with me is the indomitable and the gorgeous Ash Sarka. Ash, how are you doing? Look, all we want is proof of life for Michael Walker. You can keep the host's <laughs> chair. We just want to know that he's okay. The old Michael can't come to the phone right now. That's all I'll say. Rishi Sunak's government is still defending the decision by Home Secretary Suella Braverman to detain asylum seekers in an overcrowded facility in Kent. The Manston Processing Centre is only supposed to house 1,600 refugees and only for 24 hours. But more than 4,000 were held there in recent days, including children, many of whom have been detained there for weeks. There have been outbreaks of diphtheria, scabies and MRSA. The situation in Manston arose because Suella Braverman refused to move the asylum seekers being detained there into hotel accommodation. She has been accused of ignoring legal advice about how long they were allowed to stay at the former military base. One Home Office source told the Mirror this, When you have an influx of people coming across the channel, you don't take your time to get accommodation. We have two contractors that have a ready supply of hotel rooms and they just wait for ministerial sign-off. A submission would have gone to the Home Secretary saying, we have today had 900 or 1,000 individuals arrive and you have a statutory duty to do X, Y, Z. We need to house these people. You cannot delay those decisions as you need to keep people flowing as there are always more coming in. She has clearly broken the law as Manston is not a detention site. It is a processing site. You cannot detain people there. Braverman denies that she ignored legal advice. At Prime Minister's questions in Parliament, leader of the opposition Keir Starmer raised the issue with Rishi Sunak. 4,000 people at the Manston Air Force Base, massively overcrowded, all sorts of diseases breaking out. So, did the Home Secretary receive legal advice that she should move people out? Yes or no? Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, the, the right honourable gentleman is very fond of reminding us that he used to be the former Director of Public Prosecutions. So he knows the government's policy on commenting on legal advice. But what I can say is the significant action that the Home Secretary has taken to fix the issue. Since September, 30 more hotels with four and a half thousand new beds, appointing a senior general to control the situation at Manston and indeed increasing the number of staff there by almost a half, Mr Speaker. These are significant steps to demonstrate that we are getting a grip of this system. But this is a serious and escalating problem. We will make sure that we control our borders and we will always do it fairly and compassionately because that's the right thing. So let's just take a look at that quote. Fair and compassionate control of the borders. The BBC has this report from an asylum seeker who is housed in Manson. Ahmed, not his real name, said people at Manston Processing Centre were treated like animals, with 130 people forced to share a single large tent. Ahmed, who left the centre on Monday after 24 days there, described being forced to sleep on the floor and being prevented from going to the toilet, taking a shower or going outside for exercise. He told the BBC that he fled his home country of Iran in search of freedom and to avoid persecution saying that he had been living in fear for his life. But after arriving in the UK and at the centre, Ahmed said people were prevented from calling their families to let them know they had made the crossing to the UK safely. 
For the 24 days I'm in there, I can't call my family to say to them, I'm dead, I'm living. They don't know anything about me, he said. All people in there, they have a family. They should know what is happening to us. The conditions are now so bad that some asylum seekers are threatening self-harm. Sky News spoke to Andy Baxter, the Assistant General Secretary of the Prison Officers Association Trade Union. Tensions are rising, the population's getting bigger and bigger. There's, there's nowhere to move these people onto. I think that eventually we'll see a, a serious, uh, serious breakdown in public order. What does that mean? Potentially a riot. How concerned are you for the safety and security of your members? Our members are facing um, threats from people who are, you know, people are constantly saying to them, what's happening to me? Where am I going? When will I be getting moved on? Eventually, when, when our members can't give them an answer, people start making threats to, uh, to, to sit down, to have sit-down protests. People are making threats to go on hunger strike. People make threats of, of self-harm. Government ministers over the past two days have been saying that Marston is becoming less overcrowded as people are moved on. But the manner in which they're being moved on raises even more concerns. The Guardian Today reported this. A group of 11 asylum seekers from Manston were left at Victoria train station on Tuesday evening with nowhere to stay, without winter coats, and many of them in flip-flops, according to volunteers with the Under One Sky homelessness charity, who provided them with emergency supplies of food and clothes. They were stressed, disturbed, and completely disoriented, said Daniel Abbas, a volunteer with the charity. The group from Afghanistan, Syria, and Iraq, some of them wrapped in blankets to keep warm, were confused about what they were meant to do, he said. They were also very hungry. About 50 asylum seekers from Kent were also deposited from a bus by Victoria Coach Station at around 11pm on Saturday, according to a witness. They were still on the street at midnight trying to work out what to do, where to go. They had no money and hadn't even been told where they were, said the witness, an Afghan asylum seeker who asked not to be named. He has been housed in a nearby hostel for the past 14 months and watched them arrive. I was shocked. I tried to help. I showed them where to get free Wi-Fi, where to sit and get warm in the station. Ash, this is a real horror show, isn't it? It's completely cruel, inhumane. And what it is the result of is the set of political incentives that exist to make sure that the system is as uncaring as possible towards asylum seekers. And this is something that we discussed the other night. It goes way back through the new Labour era where the Murdoch-owned press decided that its major attack line against Tony Blair's government was going to be on the asylum issue, rather than making a principled case for an asylum resettlement programme. Instead, what the Tony Blair government did is effectively coordinate with the press so you join hands with them to make, you know, tough sounding noises, saying how you're going to crack down on bogus asylum seekers, reinforce the most negative framing possible. And of course, what happened isn't that New Labour were able to capitalise on the support of conservative leaning voters. Instead, all it did was reinforce the perception that the conservatives were better on asylum and immigration. And that is a set of incentives which is endured through successive conservative governments to this very day. And of course, you've got it now institutionalized effectively 
within the Home Office and now under the, you know, custodianship of Suella Braverman, it's taken an even more extreme turn. Because one of the things that we know about Suella Braverman as a politician, we knew this about her since her time as Attorney General, is that she doesn't really have a huge regard for taking legal advice or being constrained by what the law says her statutory obligations are. She was, of course, the Attorney General when Boris Johnson forced through the unlawful proroguing of Parliament. She's also someone who said that she wants to scrap the Human Rights Act and someone who wants to bind the hands of lawyers who want to give these people the legal representation that they morally and also legally are entitled to. So you're right, it's a total shit show. And what we're seeing is that rather than deal with this in a way that puts the human experience of really vulnerable people first, thinking about, okay, so what's our duty of care? How do we fulfill it? How do we make sure that each of these individuals has a safe and warm place to stay while we process their asylum claim? Instead, they're essentially being dumped in central London and the system's washing their hands of these people. Now, if what your raison d'etre in terms of immigration policy is, is, you know, we want to, you know, crack down on criminal gangs and crack down on the people smugglers by dumping really vulnerable people in the middle of London without any support, without warm clothes or food or Wi-Fi or anything. What you're doing is you're essentially shunting them towards the unregulated and the grey economy, because how else are they going to look after themselves? Because they don't have the right to work while they're in this country. And if they don't have the right support, you're essentially condemning them to starvation or finding a way to get money by any means necessary. So this is totally irresponsible. It's totally inhumane. And even if we were going to take the government's claims at face value when it comes to their immigration policy priorities, I don't think we should. But even if we were going to do that, this is totally and 100% counterproductive. A grim history outlined there by Ash and an even grimmer future. And the government and media are responding to this humanitarian crisis pretty predictably. And that's by scapegoating one group of asylum seekers in order to justify what they're doing to everyone else. So Suella Braverman has already accused Albanians of, quote, abusing modern slavery laws. And now the Times has reported this. Over the summer, 60% of people who crossed the channel in small boats were from Albania. Robert Jenrick, the immigration minister, plans to visit Tirana, capital of the Balkan state, in the next fortnight to bolster a deal agreed last year to return migrants. He said yesterday that the government was working on a fast-track system to speed up the removal of migrants with no right to stay. It is understood that asylum claims from Albanians would be assessed separately and within days. Other possibilities include detaining or tagging Albanian migrants or putting them on immigration bail to prevent them from absconding. But new analysis shows that Albanians are not much different from other asylum seekers coming to the UK. The Independent reports this. Analysis from the Oxford Migration Observatory reveals that 86% of Albanians who received positive decisions on asylum applications in the year ending June 2022 were women whose leave to remain was granted on the basis that they were likely to have been trafficked and in need of genuine protection. The analysis also shows that more than half of adult Albanian asylum seekers were successful at the initial decision stage. The government's rhetoric is so bad that Albania's prime minister has now told it to, quote, stop discriminating against Albanians to excuse policy failings. 
Ash, why do you think the government is suddenly targeting this very specific group of asylum applicants? Well, there's two reasons. One, again, if you go back to the new Labour era, Albanian became a tabloid synonym for criminal, deviant, pimp, and general wrongen. This was the kind of framing which you would find on a nearly daily basis in The Sun and the News of the World, The Express and The Daily Mail. And I don't know if you remember, there was a notorious story, which was the front page of The Sun, I believe, which claimed that Eastern European asylum seekers, aka Albanians, were capturing and eating the Queen's swans. Now, this turned out to be a load of utter horseshit. Uh, the Sun claimed that it had uh, found this information in a police report. There had not been any arrests or charges made for the crime of swan eating. So this is a long-standing trope when it comes to creating a racialized bogeyman who can embody the idea of the fake, the bogus, the criminal asylum seeker. And the reason why the government are turning to the scare figure of the Albanian right now is because actually when you look at the national background of many asylum seekers who are trying to seek safety on these shores, they're people who come from countries where it unequivocally you know, puts them at risk of death or imprisonment or torture or exploitation. The second most commonly recorded ethnicity for small boat crossings is Afghan. You also have many, many Iraqis. You also have many, many Iranians. These are people to whom we have a really obvious duty of care. Now, that's not to say that we also don't have a duty of care towards people from Albania. The difference is, is that in the public's mind, well, this isn't a war-torn country. This isn't under the thumb of a despotic authoritarian regime, so we don't owe them anything. But actually, many Albanians are at risk of being trafficked. So they're exactly the kind of people to whom we owe safety. And you take them out of the hands of traffickers, you take them out of the hands of people who wish to exploit them by regularizing their status and allowing them to participate in the legitimate and the regulated economy. So that's why Albanian has become this kind of scare figure. And there are also really good reasons why progressives, the left, liberals should not buy into this framing one bit. We're going to move on to our next story. With 90% of the vote counted, Benjamin Netanyahu looks set to once again become Prime Minister of Israel. It's the country's fifth general election in four years, after a string of close results and weak governments. But this time around, the right-wing bloc led by Netanyahu is projected to win a strong majority, with 65 out of 120 seats. Netanyahu has already been Prime Minister of Israel twice, including a 12-year stint between 2009 and 2021. In his time in government, Israel launched wars against Gaza, expanded settlements, and pledged to annex large parts of the West Bank. But this time round, his government could be more extreme than ever. That's because his coalition includes this man, Itamar Ben-Gavir. Ben-Gavir leads the extremist religious Zionist party. He has called for the expulsion of Palestinian citizens of Israel who are, quote, not loyal to Israel and has been convicted for incitement to racism. Less than a month ago, in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood of East Jerusalem, Ben-Gavir took part in attacks by Israeli Jewish settlers on local Palestinian residents. He brandished a gun 
telling the police to shoot at Palestinians throwing stones and yelling at them that we're the landlords here. Remember that I am your landlord. To discuss the significance of this election, earlier today I spoke to Dr. Mazen Masri, an expert in Israeli law and former advisor to the PLO. I started by asking him about how Netanyahu came back to power after being ousted just over a year ago. Well, he's back in power because the um, last government, the Lapid-Bennett government, uh, fell in the summer. And uh, of course, that's, uh, uh, he takes a lot of the credit for that. And uh, as a result of this, elections were held yesterday. And uh, the immediate reasons are they basically the electoral calculus in Israeli political system. So instead of having the usual um, division of left, right and center, uh, what we have today is two blocks. One is the pro-Netanyahu block and one is the anti-Netanyahu block. And the Netanyahu block includes parties from the center and the uh, right and uh, smaller parties on the left. So that's, and what happened here is that uh, Netanyahu spent a lot of time and effort consolidating his block, making sure that all of the smaller right-wing parties join bigger lists or bigger parties so that they won't uh, waste votes and won't split the votes amongst themselves. Uh, on the anti-Netanyahu camp or block, this did not happen. But that's kind of only the calculus. The real reason behind it, and I'd say the major reason behind it, is the uh, shift to the right in Israeli society, which is a trend that has been ongoing for the last 20 years. And so obviously a big story here is the insurgents of the far right who doubled their seats in the Knesset. Is this being matched by a similar energy on the ground? Are we also seeing an insurgence of grassroots far-right movement as well? This is a reflection of the insurgence of the uh, far-right um, in Israel society. And now, now when we're talking about the far-right, we need to kind of be clear what do we mean by this. We're talking about people who um, are the followers of the teachings of Mayor Kahana, who... Um, his teachings included Jewish supremacy and expulsion of the Palestinians, both from the West Bank and Gaza Strip and also from uh, the Palestinians who live in Israel. And this racist ideology, uh, as part of the shift to the right, is becoming more and more popular. And uh, people like Itamar Bengvir, for example, who is the rising star of this movement, who is going to be basically the most dominant figure in the next Israeli government, he was convicted twice in terrorism-related offenses. Um, he was the member of Kahana's party, and he still also espouses many of these racist views. And this type of person, for example, in the early 90s, he was not found to be fit to serve in the Israeli army. So he, he, was not, uh, he did not serve in the army even though he wanted to. And what's happening now is that... This person is going to be, or is very likely that he's going to be, the next minister of police in Israel. And this did not come out of nowhere. We can see the rise in right-wing politics uh, on the ground. For example, if you go anywhere in the West Bank, you'll see that the 
attacks by settlers, and settlers are a major component of this uh, of this movement, are on the rise. There are attacks on a daily basis against Palestinians, against Palestinian farmland, and uh, against Palestinian villages. And add to other to 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 this also the intensification of. Um, settlements and settlement activities, both in uh, the West Bank and in Jerusalem. And what do you think has led to this overall shift rightwards? What do you think are the underlying forces that have pushed the political spectrum so far in this direction? We need first to understand that the politics in Israel has always been to the right. Even at the time when Israel was led by a nominally socialist uh, party, the uh, economic policies were probably socialist. But when it comes to things like security, the relationship with the Palestinians, the relationship with neighboring countries, it was very hawkish. It was very right-wing. And uh, with the continuation of these policies, especially after the occupation of the West Bank in 1967, there was a shift both in the direction of the society being more religious and also the society being more right-wing. And that shift started in the 60s, 70s, but it was slow at the time, but it continued and it advanced all the time. And basically what we're seeing here now is the outcome of these changes reaching basically the higher uh, levels of the state. That was Dr. Mazen Masri, Senior Lecturer in Law at City University. Next story. In the wake of the abduction, rape and murder of Sarah Everard by serving Met Police Officer Wayne Cousins, the Home Office ordered a report into how the police vet new candidates. The Met had found itself under particular scrutiny because Wayne Cousins had managed to become a firearms officer even though they had received reports he'd committed indecent exposure. The report has now been published by the Inspectorate responsible for policing the police, and it makes for some pretty shocking reading. It says this. We found officers and staff with criminal records, or suspicions that they had committed crime, including some serious crime, as well as substantial undischarged debt or family members linked to organized crime. In other cases, officers and staff had given false or incomplete information to the vetting unit. We also found officers who, despite a history of attracting complaints or allegations of misconduct, successfully transferred between police forces. Most worryingly, it's clear these concerns don't just apply to a small few within the force. Matt Parr from the Inspectorate spoke to BBC Breakfast. About one in five of them uh, is somebody we think either just shouldn't have joined, or if they were going to join, should have had some special controls put around them. I don't think it's being taken seriously enough. I don't think police leadership realises how important it is. Uh, I don't think police leaders realise the risk they carry by not having higher vetting standards, uh, and therefore it's too easy for the wrong people to get in. One in five is a lot. But it gets even worse. The report arrived at the figure by reviewing 725 vetting files, in which 131 decisions were, quote, questionable at best. To put that in perspective, since 2019, 15,000 new officers have been recruited to the police force. So if one in five of those are too dangerous to be in that role, 
That makes for 3,000 new police recruits who could present a danger to the public. But how dangerous are the officers who should have never passed the vetting process? One example from the report states this. An applicant for the special constabulary was granted vetting clearance. In the mid-1990s, he received an adult caution for making threats to commit criminal damage. Six years earlier, when he was a juvenile, he was convicted of indecent exposure and received a 12-month supervision order plus £25 in costs. Over a 13-year period, he applied three times to the same force but was rejected on each occasion. On the final occasion, he appealed and the vetting manager granted clearance. The rationale for this clearance included the passing of time since the applicant had last come to notice and the fact he was a juvenile when he was convicted of indecent exposure. The rationale stated there was minimal risk to the force. We examined the detail of the indecent exposure offence, which was available in the vetting file. This showed that over a two-week period, the applicant had indecently exposed himself to the same woman on seven separate occasions. On each occasion, he stood at his bedroom window, coughed to attract her attention, and then masturbated. Minimal risk. After exposing himself to the same woman seven times in a fortnight. You know who else was convicted for indecent exposure? Wayne Cousins. Though, of course, he was an adult at the time. Here's another case highlighted in the report. A police officer applicant was given vetting clearance. The applicant had a conviction for drink driving and driving with no insurance 18 years prior to his application. Four years later, he was arrested but not prosecuted for intimidating a witness. In the same year, he was also arrested for a domestic-related assault. A woman was left with marks to her neck. There was no evidence on the vetting file to confirm or refute whether these two arrests were linked. Five years before his application, the applicant was again arrested for a domestic-related assault. In this case, too, a woman allegedly suffered injury marks to her neck. The rationale focused on the passing of time, stating that the traces on applicant are significantly aged. There was no evidence that the force had considered the full circumstances of the offences, including the reasons for no further action being taken for any of the arrests. The rationale didn't make any comment on the fact that two separate domestic-related incidents had occurred where two women were both allegedly left with marks to their neck. So those are two violent misogynists being given policing roles by, well, other misogynists because the report also uncovered a culture of rampant sexual abuse and harassment aimed at female officers. The inspectorate interviewed 41 women who work for or with the police. Some of those women reported sexual assault by male colleagues both in the workplace and at social events. But many other forms of serious sexual misconduct were reported too, including these. Viewing pornography at work by, for example, male officers, including supervisors, Viewing pornography on suspects' phones, not as part of investigations, and inviting other officers to view the images on the screen. Sending pornography to female colleagues' phones. Inappropriate sexual comments by male officers, including comments about a victim's breasts. Comments about vulnerable sex workers who are victims of crimes. And many other disparaging and insulting comments about female victims in general. At work-related social events, a senior male officer pestering a female colleague for sex. He sought to take advantage of those who he could see had clearly been drinking alcohol. 
senior male officers pursuing women in lower ranks for sex, including via the force email system, male officers making a point of stopping cars driven by women they regard as pretty, a practice they refer to as booty patrol, and male officers, including supervisors, making sexually explicit comments about female members of the public. That was all from just 41 women. And in many cases, the perpetrators had previously been reported for similar acts, which hadn't been taken seriously by their superiors. In total, the report found a culture of misogyny in every single one of the police forces they reviewed. Of course, this is only the latest in a long line of investigations revealing misogyny and racism in Britain's police forces. Ash, is this a recruitment problem or is there something about policing itself that encourages and attracts this behaviour? I think it's both, to be honest with you. I mean, look, that story about the man wanking outside of a woman's window, it really makes me want to invest in a flamethrower. So I will be scouring the internet for that after we're done with tonight's show. But look, I think that what you've described shows uh, three problems, right? One is a culture of misogyny, which is tolerated and even encouraged within the ranks. Another problem is what kind of people are attracted to applying to become part of the police force. And then the third problem is, of course, the one you mentioned, which is about the way in which the so-called safeguards are totally unfit for purpose. And I think when you combine all three of those things, that tells you that you have a structural problem at almost every level of policing. I mean, I think that it doesn't come as a huge surprise that there are people who are attracted to the police force who want to do that job, not because they're necessarily super community minded, but because they really enjoy the feeling of power and impunity in the exercise of that power that the job gives you. I think that there's also a sense that there is a, you know, root to branch problem of misogyny not only being tolerated, but embedded within how disciplinary decisions are being made. So the examples that you've given here of men in plain sight acting in ways which are harassing to women, which include sexual assault of women, and which also include using their powers as police officers to harass and degrade women, that tells you something about what they think is going to happen to them if their superiors or if their colleagues become aware of their actions. So again, that's telling you something about a structural problem. There's also a, a statistic which came to light earlier this year, which is that 80% of police officers and staff who were accused of domestic violence keep their jobs. Now, when you think about other sections of the public sector, take social work or medicine or teaching, these are not things that would be tolerated in any of these other professions. And I can't really think of another aspect of public service uh, where you're going to be coming into contact with more vulnerable people. Because as a police officer, you have powers given to you under the Mental Health Act, which means that you're coming into contact with mentally vulnerable people. You'll be coming into contact with children. You'll be coming into contact with victims of abuse. So the fact that these behaviours are tolerated, are seen as banter or seen as funny, that tells you a lot about how the police as an institution 
view their duty of care. And just on the point about, you know, what what kind of people are drawn to policing. I used to work at a, at a pub and there was this one guy who uh, we all had to work with and he was awful. He was just always really sexually inappropriate. I remember once kicking him in the face because he'd like bent down to get a bottle and then tried to touch my leg. And I was like, absolutely not. And uh, he also spoke at length about how he thought that Roma people should be rounded up. What was the job that he wanted more than anything else was to be a police officer? I think he was rejected by the Met and eventually taken up by the British Transport Police. So I think that tells you about this kind of syncretism between the kind of people who want to join the police force and the kind of behaviours which are either tacitly or explicitly encouraged or protected by the institution of policing. So the whole barrel is rotten. Dahlia, it's not just a case of 20% of the apples are rotten. You'd think that tackling these toxic cultures in police forces would be a government priority, but this is what Home Secretary Suella Braverman has decided to focus on instead. Home Secretary Suella Braverman blasts police force for playing identity politics over jailed trans women. And recently, various newspapers have reported this. Fighting actual crime, Rishi Sunak prepares to launch pushback against woke policing. Ash, what do you make of this? these headlines? We've been hearing a lot more about this danger of woke policing. What has wokeness and identity politics got to do with the police abusing their power? I mean, look, it's got absolutely nothing to do with it. But this tells you just how deranged this anti-woke moral panic really is. It is totally divorced from reality. Because if you were to take just a cursory glance at the state of policing over the last two years... What you would find are systemic problems of violence, misogyny and racism. And even if you aren't an abolitionist, even if you are just, you know, your regular, you know, middle of the road, average voter, you would say, look, there's clearly a breakdown of trust between the police and the public who they expect to consent to to being policed. All right. That is a problem. Absolutely nobody. If they were left to their own devices, untroubled by the headlines of the Daily Mail or the Telegraph or the Spectator would go, okay, well, the problem is that the police are too woke. Quite frankly, it's because the police are too rapey. That's the problem. It's totally divorced from reality. And, and it just shows you that if you are the kind of politician to entertain moral panics, you're not as serious politician. You're not someone who is serious about governing and overseeing the institutions which dictate our daily lives. I mean, look, I think that, you know, you should get a a kind of, you know, one moral panic warning as a politician. You feed one, you get a warning, you feed two, and then you're kicked out because honestly, it just shows that you're totally unfit for the job. Right. So on to our final story and he's back. It's all about Matt Hancock. The former health secretary will be taking part in this year's series of I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. And his decision has led him to losing the Tory party whip. Asked about Hancock, a spokesperson for Rishi Sunak said, At a challenging time for the country, MPs should be working hard with their constituents, whether that's in the House or in their constituency. And Hancock's local party doesn't seem too pleased about the development. The chair of his local conservative association, told papers this. I'm looking forward to him eating a kangaroo's penis. You can quote me on that. Can't say I agree. 
But writing in The Sun, Matt Hancock has defended his decision. He said, While there will undoubtedly be those who think I shouldn't go, I think it's a great opportunity to talk directly to people who aren't always interested in politics, even if they care very much about how our country is run. It's our job as politicians to go where the people are, not to sit in ivory towers in Westminster. Another motive for Matt Hancock might be to promote his book. It's called Matt Hancock's Pandemic Diaries, the inside story of Britain's battle against COVID, co-written with Isabel Oakeshott. He'll of course be hoping that his adventure in the jungle would be better for his career than the last time he got caught out by a hidden camera. It was the release of this image that ended his career as health secretary and is the reason he'll have the time to be eating bugs or kangaroo penises down under with Anton Deck. Ash, will you be watching and are you convinced that this is just him trying to reach out to the masses or is it just about him trying to fulfill some gross fetish that none of us needed to hear about in the first place? I mean, look, I'm not going to be watching, um, mostly because if I have to watch desperate people put penises in their mouths and they're unsure of why they're doing it, it reminds me too much of my second year at uni. So I've never watched I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here. But Matt Hancock, I find just a fascinating psychological specimen because I don't think I've ever seen or heard of anybody who's more thirsty for adulation and acceptance than he is. And it it makes him a really weird guy. I mean, in my head, whenever I read the name Matt Hancock, it's like it autocorrects to Hank Marvin because this brother is starving. I don't know what was missing in his childhood, but he's taking it out on all the rest of us. I mean, this argument that politicians have to go where the people are, there aren't that many people in the Australian rainforest. You know, there's just some other celebrity Big Brother contestants and maybe somebody who used to be on MasterChef. Um, So this idea that it's some sort of noble populist enterprise is absolutely for the birds. I think what Matt Hancock is is trying to do is work out his post-ass-grab career trajectory because he's somebody who immolated his own marriage in a very public way. He was brought down from high office because he was caught on camera having an illicit snog, and there isn't a path back to front bench politics for him. So I think what maybe he's trying to do is dip a toe in the world of television, see if he could maybe go down the whole, oh, what's his face? The the guy who used to be the Enfield Southgate MP and now does all the train documentaries, his name's just totally gone from my head. Michael Portillo. Michael Portillo, um, you know, maybe trying to go down the sort of uh, lovable Michael Portillo route. But I'm not sure if it's going to work because he's totally devoid of charm. You just see kind of beaming from, you know, the back of his brain somewhere, like, love me, accept me, please pat me on the head. And there's there's nothing more off-putting than the faint whiff of desperation, which is, again, something I heard a lot in my second year of uni. Matt Hancock is uh, what we call in South London a beg, and it is the worst possible (laughs) thing you can be. So, uh, I mean, I also think the reason that his shift isn't going to work is because his name is so heavily associated with one of the biggest, most 
tragic public health crises we've ever had. Like his name, when I think of him, I just think about all those unnecessary deaths, all the the NHS staff that were kind of abandoned using bin bags as, you know, PPE. You know, that that's what he, and you can't, I don't think you can come back from that in like a lovable way when, you know, so many people have have lost so much. But but also just generally, mm. I think like these reality TV stars, politician crossover, like, don't you have enough to do in your job, especially when parliament is sitting, which is when Matt Hancock is jetting off to Australia to do God knows what? Clearly not. I mean, now he's no longer health secretary. He can't hand out crony contracts worth millions of pounds to, you know, some guy who he goes to the pub with. But what I will say is this, is that I'm totally with you. Whenever I look at Matt Hancock after the horrible images of playing tonsil hockey uh, recede from my mind, obviously the thing that you think about is the government's disastrous handling of the coronavirus pandemic. But I do actually think that politicians or political operators almost no matter what they've done, are able to reinvent themselves through the media. And I think that says a lot about how the media is willing to launder people's reputations. Take Anne Widdicombe, someone who, as a conservative MP, was responsible for some of the most vicious homophobia, pro-Section 28 headbanging, which made queer people's lives in this country an utter misery. She went on a Strictly Come Dancing or some kind of celebrity dancing show. And, and she sort of almost reinvented herself as like a cuddly, awkward reactionary. Edwina Curry is found on Good Morning Britain almost every other week, opining on something or other. And again, she's almost cleaned up part of her image. And I think the worst example of this is, of course, Alistair Campbell. Alistair Campbell, you know, pioneered that political strategist slash spin doctor role under Tony Blair. And he helped build the case for a war which killed up to a million Iraqi civilians on the basis of a lie. And what he did is that he laundered his reputation through saying yes to the right media projects and also reinventing himself as a mental health spokesperson. So then lots of the really awful things that he did in power, whether that was being abusive and aggressive or indeed whether it was his his part in building that case for an illegal and totally unnecessary war was almost made palatable by like oh yeah but he was really suffering during that time so I don't think that there's anybody who the media aren't willing to launder but the fatal flaw in this case Dahlia as you said is that Matt Hancock's a beg you don't warm to him God, I think you're right, unfortunately, about that. Thanks so much for joining me, Ash, this evening. It's been so nice to see you. Thanks for having me. Just please cut the cable ties on Michael Walker's hands and let him return <laughs> to his family. Sorry, I'm very ruthless. <laughs> so thanks to all of you for joining me for my first time sitting in for Michael Walker. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.